AT podcast. We are super excited to kick off the new year with our first episode of 2022. And today I'm with a very special guest, a mover and shaker in the car world and a good personal friend of mine, Mr. Steve Serio. Hello, Howard. Thank you for having me on. And I had no idea I had the wonderful sort of honor of being the first guest of 2022. Thank you. So we are thrilled to have you. So are you dialing in from, from the temperate uh, region of, of uh, uh, suburban Boston or where, where are you at these days? Yeah, I'm sitting in my office in Boston trying to stay uh, inside today because it was it's the first really bitterly cold day of uh, 2022. And I guess it's the coldest day since sometime in 2019. So we're not driving anything fun outside today. Thank you very much. Very good. Well, uh, would love to chat with you about a ton of things today. Uh, you know, I know you're doing a lot of really interesting stuff with some really neat cars these days, which um, I think the community and listeners would love to hear about. Uh, your BAT username, for those who don't know, is Feminod, um, which I think is, is pretty uh, well known by the community thus far. You have sold, uh, without looking, Steve, how many, how many cars have you sold on BAT? What's your guess? I think the transaction uh, between buying and selling, geez, I mean, I, I think I think I'm up to selling eighty three, four, five cars, and and a couple of piles of parts and a rare set of wheels. So, and and I personally have purchased, strangely, have never purchased anything for resale, um, but have purchased. I'm going to guess a, a dozen cars from you guys. So maybe not that many, maybe eight. You're close. You're close. We've got a few in the hopper. You, you've, you've successfully sold 71 and wow, you've, you've won 11, including some very recently. Actually, um, I've sold a few uh, personal cars of mine on BAT over the years. And the first or second uh, car I sold actually was bought by yours. Truly. You'll, you'll recall, I think that was, Back in 2015 or 16, uh, a really, really cool uh, uh, BMW 2000 TII Turing bodied Alpina uh, with all the Alpina bits. Um, and you were the lucky winning bidder. That, that was a cool car, huh? That was a very cool car. And I think um, I resold the car to somebody who was an underbidder and tracked the car the entire time I had it. Um, yeah, that was a very cool car, and I, that was my second to last or last 2002 that I ever owned. I think I've owned 13 of the things, and uh, always been a personal favorite car. I finally, I, I finally ran the life out of them, um, and that the funny part of that car, other, other than being a great car, being documented to death from the build at Alpina, um, I found the toolkit buried underneath the carpet, underneath the rear seat that I don't think you knew was there. So that oh, dude, we, we, we missed that. We missed that. that. That could have been good for a few more bids. <laughs> yeah, the, the proper gray vinyl bag with all of the almost rusty tools sitting under the carpet of the rear seat. So, so is that, wait a minute, I, I'm now I'm confused. The 71 cars that I had up, does that include the no sales? because we've had a couple of no sales and I thought all in, we were about 80 odd, 
80 odd units, but we, we can go we over like, this later. We don't like to talk about the no sales, but, but no, <laughs> uh, 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 71 total, 71 total. Good, okay, um, fine. You know, one thing I will say about you, Steve, is that you have something uh, that is rather rare in the collector car world today. Uh, and that is actual credibility uh, that you know what you're talking about. Um, and, and certainly that's been, that's been honed over, over many decades uh, doing what you do. So I, I'd love if you can share with the listeners kind of, uh, you were a, a new uh, Aston Lotus dealer for many years. Um, you play around now with uh, some pretty serious private brokerage of, of some high level uh, 50s and 60s stuff. So give us a little background on uh, kind of your history and how you came to be. Yeah, it's the great story of how none of it was planned. Um, in a nutshell, and, and if people have heard me talk about, you know, this on a podcast before, come back in approximately four minutes and, and you cannot be bored by this. But uh, 1987, I made the leap almost full time from being a professional photographer to a uh, car you can either think of it as reimporting Aston Martins to the UK or exporting them back out of the United States. Um, just simply noticing that old Astons, particularly DB four, fives and sixes were worth twice back in England, what they were in the United States. And a great many cars were purchased in the late seventies, early eighties uh, and brought here because they were frankly worthless. And the dollar was so strong against the pound it was almost at parity. So uh, folks would travel to England, they'd buy right-hand drive, Astons, Rolls Royces, you know, you name it, Jags, and would bring them home. And then they'd realize, well, these things don't, you know, they're not the easiest things to keep running uh, if you don't have a network of people to work on them. And, you know, for a handful of years, you know, traveling on vacation to Europe, I just kept watching the trend of, you know, if something was $5,000 in the United States, it was 5,000 pounds um, back in England. And now the pound had almost rebounded to its fullest at two to one against the dollar. So uh, I just started because of my love of old cars and I needed to be able to afford one, how I was going to have a second job um, to supplement my photography income. So I just go around the country and get newspapers, uh, go to Harvard Square where um, there was a great newsstand and I'd come out with an armful of Sunday classified ads from all over the country and just start calling people. So I pipelined a bunch of cars to a mutual friend um, in uh, the UK, introduced to me from somebody from the Aston Martin Owners Club. And when the first classic car boom hit, I had a pipeline of, of Astons, you know, if I were smarter, it would have been a pipeline of Ferraris or a pipeline of Porsches, but it was a pipeline of Astons. And that really got me into the business. And, you know, sort of fast forward 35 years later, uh, you know, I became a Lotus dealer in 1991 because I had a British centric uh, garage in Massachusetts and Lotus had gotten my name from a couple of people in Florida, again, mutual friends. Um, so I, I, you know, then put a, a new car shingle up and was the biggest Lotus dealer for, you know, that and a cup of coffee will get you a big cup of coffee in the nineties. I was, I think I was four out of five years in the nineties, the biggest Lotus dealer in the country. And had always been chasing Aston Martin as a franchise. 
I started in 91, knocking on their door. And in 90, at the Detroit Auto Show in late 95, going into 96, uh, was introduced to the folks at Aston, uh, formerly from Lotus and became an Aston dealer uh, until December, no, excuse me, until October of 2020. So that was a good ride. Uh, along the way, there was uh, the original uh, revamp of Bugatti. I did that launch in Boston right, right after we did the launch. The whole thing folded, which was a shame because that was associated with Lotus. I was a Vespa dealer for a long time and learned how not to do something. Um, Spiker, Celine, you know, I threw my name in a lot of hat, hats just to try to keep the new car business fun. But the entire time that was going on, um, the old car business was driving uh, the bottom line. So that was really, you know, it was, it was Aston centric for a very long time. And then it, you know, and then markets ebb and flow. And I tried to be a chameleon and really get into markets that were, you know, warmer. And as I've told the story a couple of times, you know, when the market, when we took that big hit in September of 08, and September of 08 or 09, um, whenever the markets collapsed, I think it was 09. Um, by the time mid 2010 happened, I came very close to sort of closing my doors going, well, you know, the, the collector car business and the new car business was, was tanking. And then I just, again, decided instead of focusing on pedestrian classic cars. I have all the contacts around the world. Why don't I just focus on the really hard to find stuff? And the classic car market again picked up, thankfully. And I was in the midst of a real Ferrari bender um, on single seat Formula One cars, Indy cars. Um, one was an Indy car, uh, you know, things like 340s, 375s, um, the you know an occasional 410, and then we rolled into 500 Mondials. Uh, you know anything that was super rare, um, I I had the contacts for, and I just focused on that, and that ran hot for a very long period of time. As everybody knows, the Ferrari market, you know, it tends to cycle, and there's a lot of big Ferraris that I wish I had owned and and kept one or two of them, or had the ability to keep keep one or two of them. And then, you know, that again morphed when that market got quiet, it morphed into, you know, focusing on things like, you know, a couple of GT40s, the 300 SLs, Lancia Aurelia Spiders, um, you know, you name it. And then, then it changed again uh, into aluminum and plastic Porsches for the last handful of years and working very closely with the guys at Road Scholars by, again, none of this was planned. It just sort of happened. Um, that's where the last few years have been and it's been great it's been you know if i could if i could have another couple of years like this howard uh, we've talked about retirement before i could retire earlier and you could retire earlier we could go we can go travel and party somewhere so you've uh, that's a you've, rant. Definitely, you've definitely been doing some interesting uh, stuff with old porsches which, which i definitely want to come back to um is it safe to say that if you sign up to be a lotus dealer uh, you're pretty deep in kind of the enthusiast end of the pool. I, I can't imagine that a lot of people say, I, I want to get rich, so I'm going to be a Lotus franchise dealer. Oh, God, no. I mean, again, it's all dumb happenstance. And 
the Lotus franchise for me helped me grow my business by hiring a couple more technicians, hiring a proper salesman. Um, and then, you know, it was an incremental thing, you know, and at the time, you know, Lotus had a sweet spot where they were coming out of uh, the four cylinder cars when I got involved. They, it, when I first got involved, we were actually selling the 1991 Elan, which was a real Harvard Business School lesson in how not to do something and overprice a product and then launch it at the same time the Miata was launched and the Ford Capri and the Metro and every other little tiny two seater. So the Elan got crushed, um, but it was kind of a cool car. It wasn't a $40,000 car, but it was a very cool thing. And they were, they were killing it with the four-cylinder Esprit because you know, really the four-cylinder turbo Esprit and the F40 were the two quickest things on the road at that time, which is real oddball trivia. So if you think of what an F40 is worth today and you think about you're getting the same bang for the buck if you're, if you're measuring it in a straight line, the 2.2 liter Lotus engine was the most efficient motor you could buy per liter. Um, again, we're getting into the weeds here, but you know, when they made the S4 and the S4S going into 95, they were kind of really running with the ball. Then the V8 came out. That was a hot seller because everybody thought it was going to be a better car. And frankly, it wasn't. And, and then I rode the coattails of selling the Elise and the Exige when they were launched in the United States. And that was a blast. That was just making, you know, sandwiches and selling them over the counter. It couldn't have been easier. Along with the, you know, sort of coinciding with that, I got the Aston franchise and the DB7 was launched, which was a car that didn't have any competition at that time. Bentley wasn't doing anything in a sports car. Mercedes wasn't doing anything in, you know, they were doing SLs, but none of them were manual transmission. So, you know, manual transmission, I6, DB7, um, going into the DB7 Vantage, you know, V12, uh, then going into the GT, there was some real fun momentum there. And again, yeah, no, I wasn't retiring on these sales, but, you know, having a, a DB7 parked in a showroom next to a DB5 convertible, next to a DB4 GT, next to, you know, a, a Lotus Esprit made for, you know, a very interesting little showroom. And we were dealing with the micro niche geeks of the world. You know, it was it was fun. And then Aston hit their stride in the early 2000s with the first generation Vanquish, which was and is still is a great car if you can find one that's well maintained. And then they came out with the V8 and the DB9. And that's that that to me was like a three or four year period where, again, like Lotus selling the Elise, everything we had, we could sell. Um, and then, you know, they kind of went a different path that I wasn't interested in following. So, you know, was it why I didn't get into selling Aston Martins uh, to sell DBXs. So I, I lost interest uh, on a couple of different levels. You know, the, the, the trucks were not where my heart was at. And, you know, management would always clutch defeat uh, from the, the what is it they'd snatch defeat from the jaws of victory every time they were getting momentum so well, they also they also had they also had the azusu contract with those i marks with handling by lotus right that was that was before <laughs> the, their 90s initiatives when they started making some cars that people actually wanted to buy well i mean lotus un, unknown to most people in the automotive world if you're not in the weeds with it is an engineering company you know they're not 
you know, manufacturing to Lotus for decades was what kept their name in the automotive world. But, you know, they were doing manufacturing for the big three. They were doing it for uh, trains in Japan. They were doing it for trucks. They were, they were doing stuff for Isuzu. You know, suspension tuning and, and handling was Lotus's gig. And that's why their cars always felt, you know, Julia Roberts, Newton, pretty woman. You know, this is, this is on rails. You know, let me drive this thing. And that's what they were all about. They weren't about building wonderful volume cars. And now that's what they're planning on doing. So again, uh, hey, I wish them all the luck in the world. They were kind to me for decades. You know, you have um, a lot of experience trading in, in vintage Aston Martins. I would say probably the, uh, or maybe the most significant car you've sold on BAT uh, was, you'll recall, that 63 DB4 Series 5 Vantage. Um, which sold back in September of 2021. You know, I, I'll say that, you know, I'd say I know a little about a lot of different cars, but my vintage kind of DB4 and DB5 knowledge is, is a little light. And for whatever reason, uh, specifically with vintage Astons, I think that, you know, real expertise is, um, is not that widely known. And uh, I would consider you somewhat of an expert um, with those. And uh, you know, unlike more kind of meat and potato stuff where uh, there's a lot of people that, you know, have a broad base of knowledge for a variety of cars um, for stuff like, you know, Aston and, and, and Rolls and other stuff, but uh, specifically Aston Martin, there ain't too many people around that uh, really truly are experts to know what they're talking about. Um, so tell us a little bit about, uh, would, would you agree with that? And, and kind of the, the vintage Aston Martin uh, market more specifically, um, that's not the easiest car to, for example, put in an online auction and represent intelligently and answer questions intelligently um, that you'd be able to do, uh, you know, maybe more easily with, uh, with something else. Well, that's very kind of you. I mean, expert's a funny word because I, I would never refer to myself as an expert in anything other than having opinions um, of which you're very well aware. Um, and I generally, if I talk long enough, I'll, I, I will shoot myself in the foot and I will say something completely inappropriate. Um, but giving an opinion is, is what it's all about. And yeah, there, there are other people in the United States. Lance Evans, uh, a restorer in Pennsylvania, has been around forever. He's got a great staff. Kevin Kay out in Redding, California, I'd give a big shout out to because Kevin is, you know, shit, Kevin, Kevin is he, he's a great restorer. And then I, I defer to people in the UK, uh, Nicholas, me, and there's a few other folks um, that have been around really a great long time, Desmond Smale, Peter Stratford, um, that I've learned a lot of things from and, I, and I, I just absorb. So I think through being the biggest, I was a whale in the mud puddle of the Aston world for a long time. And I, I gave Steve Wakefield from Simon Kidston's place, a quote the other day, where he was asking me why I got involved with Porsches. And I said, you know, if there's somebody that wants to buy an Aston Martin, chances are there are 50 people that want to buy a Ferrari and there are a thousand people that want to buy a Porsche. So if you're dealing with Astons, you, you're, you know, unless you have a, a complete James Bond fetish, I, you know, I went through my entire Aston career listening to people call them Austin Martins. They're so, they're so under understood, if that's, that's redundant, but they're so well understood in this country. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 I get it. I, I like the cars. I've always had a warm spot for them. Um, I, I, 
I've always owned one, you know, for a great many years. And to your to your question, going back to that vantage that I sold with you guys, you know, I can put a little bow around my relationship with Bring a Trailer because of that car. Um, it's a funny thing. I had that car. That car is very close to me because that car almost single-handedly got me interested in being an Aston Martin dealer. It was owned by a very close friend of mine here in Boston. And it's the first real Aston I got to study up close in the early 80s. I had seen a couple of cars on the streets and, you know, had, had, had talked to a couple of owners, but met this guy that owned this car and he had had it since the mid 70s. He was the, the third owner. And it's, as it turns out, it's a bit of a holy grail car in the Aston Martin world. It's a left-hand drive DB4 Series 5 Vantage. I think there were 17 of them, um, you know, and, and they're, they're, very, they're very rare things. And what they really are is it's the first form of a DB5, except it's lighter. Um, the lines are a little bit different. It, you know, it's a very cool thing. So I gladly um bought that car back from a fellow i sold it to in 2004 in california and he wanted to sell it i you know i think i paid him five times what i sold it to him for certainly four and a half times maybe five times so he was happy i got the car back here and it was the typical thing where a ferrari shop had done some things wrong on it we spent kind of three or four months diddling with it when we were when my techs had a little bit of time on their hand and we, we improved all the things that had, were probably wrong with it since the mid seventies and things I, I didn't catch first time around, you know, 17 years ago. So, you know, the car was very dear to me and I thought this is a really valuable thing and I'm going to look forward to selling it. So I put it on the market for seven ninety five was the asking price. And, you know, on big cars, I tend not to really, advertise them widely. I tend to talk to people about them. And I had two folks come in and really kick the tires hard. And then one ended up buying a very significant Ferrari and another one ended up buying a boat. So I thought, all right, um, why don't I try to put this on your site as a really heavy car? I've seen some SLs do great numbers. You, you had some other you know, four GTs and, and there, you, you had already proven that you could sell million dollar cars. And I did really well selling a 250 PF coupe to a fellow in Europe on your site prior to this. So I thought, okay, well, let's give it a shot. In the worst case scenario, hundreds of thousands of people are going to see this car for $99. So um, I think it was a 14-day auction. When the auction came to fruition, I was on one of the, I think it was on the Colorado Grand or I believe, yeah, I believe that's where I was. And I hit a dead zone. So the auction was finishing. I was following it. It was threatening to get near my reserve. So I dropped the reserve and then the thing lit. Um, and, you know, it sold for $830,000 proving that here, what do I know? I've only been selling these cars since 1987 and you guys pull a rabbit out of your hat. I, that that number was, I think I can say this, you know, happily uh, and get recorded. It was well above the reserve that I had, and it was thirty five thousand dollars more than my private asking price. So, um, you know, that was pretty much a grand slam and proving the power of a 
uh, of a platform that is now, I've said it, you know, it's the, it's the great disruptor in, in the auction world and in, in not just the auction world, Howard, the world of selling cars through a fancy classified. Because if you think, if you, if you boil it down, that's sort of what you have. And, but you have it, you know, it isn't about Hemmings anymore. It's about um, 300 pictures, a couple of videos, great presentation and a gallery full of people where if they're not derailing your auction accidentally or, or you know, um, <laughs> I suppose purposely, um, you, you get and you talk to the peanut gallery and you, and you be polite with them and answer intelligent questions, it's a great format. So that, you know, you're not plugging me to say this, it's, it's what I believe in. And on that note, you, you've really embraced uh, the BAT auction model really since day one. I mean, I think I recall that you were actually a bidder on, on BAT auction uh, lot number one, two, and three. I think you were bidding on Randy's uh, Step Nose Alpha uh, way back in, in uh, when was that, July 2014. So uh, no, definitely we appreciate that you've you know, been a supporter since the beginning. You've sold, I mean, on your Fibonacci, all sorts of stuff, E-types, Testarossas, Triumph TR6s. DB4s, 560SLs, Lancia Fulvias, Rabbit Callaway Turbos. Um, is that uh, kind of indicative of, of the variety of cars that you deal in kind of weekly or, or the, the um, kind of the, the mix uh, looking through your history is, is pretty neat? Uh, well, thanks. It's, yeah, no, there's a, we've always had weirdo stuff here. And I've always, I, I've always tried to, own and sell cars that frankly you know you don't have a lot of option you don't have a lot of options i mean i i'm not i was never a volume car guy i was never a volume dealer um and i never liked dealing in things that if you if you had one and there were 30 others on the market you know damn well that the guy looking for one is going to look at the other 30 and the way the internet works, you better have the best one and priced aggressively to uh, be successful in a sale. So I'd rather have something that, yeah, there might be another one somewhere or there might be another three or four or five of them, but try to have the best one or the cheapest one. And yeah, I mean, I go back to when I first started being successful on your site. Um, we had a, 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 a Lotus Salon that was literally dropped in our door that somebody abandoned and said, I can't deal with this car anymore. I can't fix it. It, it, the engine, it was a non-runner. And we thought, let's put it up there and see what it does. Uh, we had a Lagonda, which I'm notoriously famous for hating as automobiles. And this one, you know, came from the past owner of, you know, Aston Martin, Peter Sprague, who took really poor care of the car and parked it in a damp garage. And we did okay with it, you know, and I'm, th I'm thinking early on, listen, if this site can find uh, a buyer for a, a, a Lotus with a blown engine and a Lagonda with rust, you know, this is, this is something. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you the laugh about having bid on Randy's car, lot number one. I didn't read the fine print. I didn't know about the, hey, two, you know, after your final bid, you know, if somebody bids again, there's another two minutes. And I had an iPad with me in a car and I pulled over to make a bid. I was high bidder. The auction ends, so I thought, and then somebody sniped me at the last second. I already put the the iPad away and drove home and went. I got home and I looked and I went, 
I think I stopped bidding at $40,000 and the car ended up selling for around 50 or 51. And I thought, wait a minute, how didn't I end up with that car? <laughs> and learned very quickly how the rules work. Um, but, but yeah, back to your original question. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the the one that hit me again that stands out is a Renault Turbo um, that I I had purchased from another dealer, uh, an R5, and bought it bought a package of cars from him, and thought this you know we'll try to advertise this and it, I think we had advertised it for 129, and had a couple of really strong hits on it. Had a guy from Los Angeles communicate with us for 30 days. We answered every single question possible, and then he lowballed us, and we thought you know what. Let's try this on Bring a Trailer. I think the car did 135 if my, you know, lucid memory here is working. So, yeah, we I, I try to stick with stuff that, you know, unlike a lot of your much, you know, the, the, I look at guys on your site that have two or three cars on there weekly and, and just go, God bless them, because they have created a, a store for themselves that wipes away having having the expense and the responsibility for a proper brick and mortar building, which I don't think you need anymore. I think you need a, I think you need a good videographer, a good photographer. I think you need a good writer and you need to be honest and photograph, you know, every single corner of a car, because the one thing you don't take a picture of somebody, and again, somebody who's probably not going to bid is going to go, how come I don't see a picture of the back of the rear view mirror? Um, so, you know, I, I think you, you, you find a way to, to properly display your goods online and, and save yourself the, the ass ache of, you know, a, a 10 or 20,000 square foot building with a mortgage or a rent and, and carry on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned you, you've done a Porsche stuff for many, many years. I, I know that uh, your, your own personal event car is a, a 356 Speedster. Um, that I've seen you uh, driving on, on many events over the years. Um, I, I guess you spend a lot of your time now doing, uh, you mentioned working with the Road Scholar guys, but doing um, you know, private deals and brokerage kind of uh, at, at the deep end of the Porsche pool um, with stuff like 550 Spiders and 904s and 906s and, and um, you know, all that great stuff. Um, so I, I would love to hear a little bit about that and uh, kind of uh, what you're doing in the Porsche world these days. I, I know you guys are doing some cool driving events um, and, and all sorts of stuff. So it, it's not just the uh, transactional uh, uh, component. Well, yeah. I mean, um, again, finding a little niche. I mean, at one point before the Porsche thing, and you just you said something there that made me think, you know, I, not just Porsches, but I mean, at one point three or four years ago, I had six Bizzarinis in my building um, that I had kind of squirreled away and started selling them one by one because I really believed, along with you know Chuck Ray from the Mid Atlantic uh, at Grand Touring, you know we've been swapping cars forever, and Chuck's you know Chuck's been heavily into the Bizzarini and ESO world, and um, so you know focusing on those million dollar plus cars, again, teaches you a lesson that if you can gain knowledge and trust and get into a pool of, of sellers and buyers um, in, in a niche, you can do really well. Because inevitably what's gonna happen from this um, podcast, because it always happens when I do something either with Matt Farah or, or I do something online, 
I'll get a text later that says, can you teach me how to do what you do? And, and I politely say, I can't because I started 35 years ago. And other than focus on something that you can make a lot of money at, become an expert in it and, and own it, and then go from there. You know, I mean, <laughs> how to be a millionaire is, is start with a million dollar line of credit and, and get investors and, and buy and sell cars that way. So I, 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 I went down a little bit of a fork that I, I wasn't meant to go down, but um, back to the, the cars that matter, um, working very closely, and, and the name of my business being Bond Group has nothing to do with James Bond. And I've always managed to make a name for my business that never encompasses exactly what I do. I mean, I, for, for forever, everybody thought I was an Aston Martin guy only or a Lotus guy only in the, in the entire time you know, I might have been selling you know, three years worth of vintage Ferraris and hadn't sold in Aston. But, um, you know, focusing on a core group of people around the world, and I deal with six other guys, and there are seven of us that talk almost daily. And we try to sort of source out either buyers or sellers of things that are super rare. And so, yeah, last year, um, I mean, the heaviest car I, I think I sold dollar-wise was a um, one-off 250 short wheelbase uh, Ferrari. And then you work down to like the pedestrian million-dollar cars, whether they're Mercedes-Benzes or Bizzarinis or, you know, some wonderful type of, of, of Rolls or Bentley. Um, and, and going back to my quote about the volume of people interested in Porsches, there's a huge market for great Porsche collectors and whether they collect 911s, whether they collect 944s, but some of them collect aluminum bodied cars. Some of them want GT ones on down. And the lesson there is if you're going to spend time selling something, um, I, I, you know, I guess I realize this very late in my career it's just as hard to sell something that's $15,000 than it is for something that's 15 million. It's the same amount of work. So why not go on the bigger margin car? And that's sort of easy to say, having again, 35 years worth of contacts and um, you know, knowing where the dead bodies are in that world. And, and I've said to people, you know, sort of candidly as clients, if I can't find it, I'm not saying, I'm not being grandiose. I can't find everything, but within that group of six other guys, if we can't find it in a sensible amount of time, we probably you, you, you're just going to have to wait. So um, I guess I've focused on things that were expensive and valuable and very collectible because a it's it's just as hard to sell those cars as it is. It's harder to sell my 914.6 than it is one of the few cars that failed on your site, by the way. Um, because there, there, there are so many experts in that field and there are so many people that will get in your way trying to do a transaction versus, hey, you know, let me work closely with my friends in the Porsche world and go find two or three 550s or 550As or RSKs and get a list of people that want those cars and, and try to get the customer first, then go find the car. Uh, did I just talk in circles as you head spinning? <laughs> Not at all. Talking in circles is what this is all about. So stuff like 
stuff like Carrera Abarth GTLs and RSKs and yep. RS60s. Uh, are there are there any of those still sitting in barns, or are most of them discovered and known and um, uh, and not hiding in plain sight? Well, most of them most of them are known. It's funny you mentioned the Abarth because I've had the pleasure of selling three of those twenty odd cars in the last. 24 30 months and actually sold one of them you know again with, with you know the my 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 cohorts um i i could use a fourth and a fifth one and and those aren't available right now and and i, and I don't imagine they will be but yeah a 550 does does pop up and a couple of years ago um a a, a twice uh, entered Lamar car. Uh, I found, uh, I didn't find it. I was tipped, tipped off on it by a friend of mine in the UK at a Christmas lunch. And it's all about, again, the people, you know, and this car had, had been off the market and, and kind of hiding in plain sight for decades. And there were a handful of people looking for the car and trying to buy it. And I just, happened to pond it and, and cam ingram and i went out to, to germany and, and inspected the car couldn't believe what we found had the first opportunity to buy the car you know as it was being sold very quietly and we put the minute we saw it, we put our hand up for it and within less than 24 hours we had four people on the car within 12 hours after that one of the guys jumped and said i'll take it and then 12 hours after that another guy said i'll have it and he was the bridesmaid so that stuff exists. Um, you know, there aren't any DB4 GTs that are hidden anywhere. There are no DB4 GT Zagatos hidden anywhere any more than there are Ferrari GTOs. But in the Porsche world, things tend to, because there's a higher volume of, the, volume of them, you, you can find one in a collection that might be hiding in a corner somewhere. And, and this collection is well known, but the fact that the guy has an RS60 or an RS61 and nobody knew it was there is, is more common. So yeah, they're, they're out there. I, I wouldn't use the term barn find. Um, I think the last barn find car was literally in a barn. It was a 550A Spider that I sold to Jerry Seinfeld in the late 2000s, by about 2008. And um, you know, that car ended up being one of the most significant 550As. And when it rolled into my shop, it was just a, a pile. You know, it was it was a car that needed to be fully restored, but it boy, was it all there. And, you know, I'd love to have that car back again for what I sold it to him for 14 years ago. So, you know, you mentioned focusing on, on the more valuable stuff, which makes a lot of sense. But uh, you actually do, I mean, you sell 91 Lands and, and 97 M3s and 944 Turbos. So you're, you're doing it all. You, you are not, you are certainly not a value snob. And that makes you, uh, you know, a cool guy because you're, you're playing, uh, you're playing <laughs> with all of it. Well, I mean, that's, that's the curse of enjoying automobiles. And, you know, I owned a Volkswagen thing and I did have a GTI Rabbit Callaway and, you know, I, you know, I've had a, a bunch of, you know, Range Rovers and Land Rovers as, as kind of goofy trucks and things that are not terribly valuable. And I can appreciate, you know, I can appreciate a 924 or a 944 cars I grew up with as much as I can, you know, a 2002. So yeah, I, you know, if it's, you know, Howard, let me, let me put my, 
uh, salesman whore hat on for a second and go, can I make money with this? So can I, can I, wait a minute, if I can buy this $5,000 car and sell it for $10,000, that's $5,000. You know, that's, if I can buy something for 10 and sell it for 12, that's $2,000 that, you know, I'm not, I, I, I'm not going to pass up on that opportunity. Um, you know, I'd rather buy something for 800,000 and sell it for 900. Uh, because again, it's going to be just as much work. I'd rather sell something, you know, find something for 2 million and, and put a margin in it and, and sell it above 2 million. Um, but that's that, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not a, uh, a retail snob where somebody will come to me and go, you know, right now, um, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying, you know, we're going to put a G63 up on your site. Um, that's a 2018 truck that there's a margin in it. Am I going to, you know, retire off of that? No. Um, I'm working on getting, you know, a brand new, um, you know, Ben's wagon, a S63 as well, and, and putting it up there from a client because yeah, it's, it's, it's money that helps pay the rent. It's, you know, it's why I'm turning my old building into a storage facility because, you know, parking cars at 400 bucks a month is it's a business. Um, and not everything can be a multi-million dollar car sale. So having, you know, feelers and, and having the octopus arms out, you know, to, to grab, you know, 20 bucks here and a thousand dollars here and $500 here, and, you know, still doing the occasional bit of service work here and, making clients happy and making a small margin in it. It's all, it's all business. And when everything goes through a cycle uh, and I've been through a handful of cycles and this, I, I have to wake up every morning thinking the million dollar car sale thing will come to a grinding halt tomorrow. And if I go into work every day with that fear that those opportunities will disappear, it, it humbles you into thinking, you know, hey, I, I'm not going to give up anything. And again, I told you, I was 48 hours away from going bankrupt, you know, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, and just thought, wait a minute, you know, sold my own Gullwing, sold my own Carrera to Sunroof Coupe to keep my business going. And when there was, you know, stuff to run out of selling going, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is very humbling. I'm not the smartest guy in the room <laughs> you know, by any stretch of the imagination. Things are good now, but, you know, what goes up comes down and um you know this this car cycle will happen again i hope it doesn't for another couple of years but it's it's bound to well that is so true and and, and success is is always rented never owned as they say and, and the rent is due every month um on the subject of, of kind of previewing um some interesting more interesting stuff you guys you have coming up on bat uh i do think there's a, a pretty special uh, 60s uh, Zagata body Lancia that that is uh, on the horizon. Tell us about that car. Yeah, that's actually a 1959. That's a, a sport Zagato, the very first um, uh, Zagato car for Lancia um, that, that was, you know, really the collectible car. They made 99 of them. Um, I had the car once before. I took it in trade on an Aston Martin DB4. I put it to a new caretaker. Um, I got it back from him. And it's, I think in many, you know, in many ways, it's the same joy of driving that car, albeit slower and without a lot of competition history than an Aston Martin DB4 GT Zagato. 
So if you look at the Aston, which is a, you know, pick a number 12 to $16 million car, or maybe 10 to $15 million car now, and you look at, at what these have typically traded at, um, you know, th this car, I think the last time around was about $750,000. I don't know where the market is today exactly, which we're going to let you guys figure it out. But that is typical of the stuff I enjoyed selling there. I don't think there's another one today for sale in the U.S. Um, it's a worldwide market for those cars. There are a lot of uh, buyers for them in Europe. There's buyers for them in the Far East. And, you know, this, this particular car went through a 6,000 hour restoration at a private garage in Costa Rica of all places, um, where I, the fellow who had it, and I, and I may get some of the details wrong here, he was either the Toyota or Nissan um, importer for that part of the world and maybe Honda as well. He was a very, very um, accomplished race car driver, you know, in an amateur level and car collector and had his own team of people restore this car. And we have the full photo documentation of the car being taken down to bare metal. The car lived with a fellow by the name of Tullius in California for like 35 years, who was very well known in um, the Lancia world. And my client uh, ended up restoring the car and then gave it to David Gooding to sell. And it, it failed at auction to sell that year. Uh, he traded it to me. And now, you know, full circle, I ended up shaking the car down a couple of times. Um, and here it is. It's a turnkey thing now. And if, if you'd like a super rare, you know, sport Zagato from 1959, you know, let, let's try it out. I, I don't think your site has had one. I, and again, I think launches on your site kind of fall the way Aston's do. You know, it's, it's maybe a hit or miss thing, um, but I'm sure um, there are some launcher guys that have helped us with the lesser priced Fulvias. Um, they're, they're a font of knowledge and far more knowledgeable, and, and especially with the technical details than, than I'll ever be on those cars. So it will be curious. It will be curious to see how the Brig a Trailer audience um, embraces or disregards this car one way or the other. I'd like to think, you know, um, we'll do okay with it, you know? Yeah, certainly. We uh, were well, super excited to, uh, to list that. Um, we've only ever had one other one, which um, incidentally was was totally Aratunov's old car, but a later car, a, a 63 uh, Sport 3C Zagato that we had a couple of years back, uh, your sure. car being, being the earlier um, uh, earlier car with some, some earlier Zagato design cues, which I actually prefer. Um, you, you had mentioned the, the, uh, the car market um, uh, being very strong, which we know that it is. Um, you know, we don't talk a lot about kind of market dynamics on this podcast, although I, I think uh, a lot of our listeners would um, would love to hear more about that. Um, you know, certainly certainly the super high end stuff um, is doing very well. We see on, on Bring a Trailer a, a huge amount of uh, growing interest in, you know, vintage uh, four by fours and trucks, uh, scouts and blazers and Broncos and uh, FJs and that sort of stuff. Um, but what, what is surprising to me is, is the strength and stuff that um, you thought maybe uh, kind of uh, nestled into its kind of narrow value band, but, but that has come back up. Stuff like 55 to 57 T-Birds and, and, and C3 Corvettes and even, even stuff like, a, like 76 Eldorados are, are going nuts. 
um, and and a lot of those like '70s kind of American sleds, Lincoln's and and uh, you know Cartier edition '79 Continental. <laughs> I mean, who knew this stuff? Um, you know, would would be booming alongside maybe the more kind of obvious things you'd identify. So um, I'll throw you kind of an open-ended kind of uh, what do you attribute this kind of, you mentioned the market moves in cycles, which it certainly does. We seem to be going through um, kind of a, a, a peak uh, cycle period now. What do you attribute that to and kind of what are you seeing in your day-to-day? -day? Well, you know, I, I... It's a, it's a great question and probably one that we could gas on about for if there were three guys in here, you know, in my world, you'd get, you know, three or four varying different opinions. But I, I think overall, um, there was a little bit of a perfect storm in the last couple of years. And I wrote a couple of, I'll call them op-eds about um, when COVID hit and the world shut down. I'm, you know, the weasels and sharks uh, came out and thought, okay, cars aren't going to trade. Everybody's going to, you know, the whole world is going to get sucked up and go to this Dante seven, you know, rings of hell and we're all going to die in the inferno. And, you know, you have to sell all of your stuff at 50 cents on the dollar because everybody's going to lose their job and IRAs are going to be worth nothing and the stock market's going to crash. Well, you know, all of those great pontificators um, were proven wrong. And and it, myself, to a degree, when, when this first started, I would, I, I don't know what the tracking would have been from 19 going into 20 and into mid 20 for bring a trailer. But I thought, you know, how can this, you guys must have been selling 30 cars a day then. And again, I, I, I'm sure you know, and I, I'm guessing, but it wasn't anything like the volume of what you're doing now. And I actually thought there's got to be a malaise. There's got to be a bringer trailer malaise, you know, Monday through Friday before you guys went seven days a week. And there has to be a slowdown. Well, okay. So color me completely hundred percent wrong. COVID hits, it goes through 2020 into 2021 and the tsunami of interest in old cars grows and grows and grows. And it's as, it's as if you took people that had never bought cars before and you coupled it with a pandemic, you, you coupled it with people looking at their own mortality. And then you threw in the fact that although a great many folks in, in the population suffered, and certainly if you're in the hospitality business, you suffered. And, and if you were one of the hospitality workers or you know, there's, there was a lot of suffering going on, but folks that were relatively well healed that had some cash might have been in businesses that grew. And so now you've got this, this great melting pot of the perfect storm where everybody who is interested in cars and folks that really were peripherally interested are all getting more interested because they're locked down and they're, they're studying and they're looking at screens and they're watching things and they're thinking, what am I waiting for? So I think there's a lot of that, what am I waiting for in the lesser priced cars and the things that you wouldn't have predicted like those big 70s sleds. I mean, I have friends that, that absolutely love big Ford two and four door cars from the 70s that might have been cars that were 5,000 to 7,500 bucks. I mean, if 10 grand might have been a reach for one of those things, 
a few years ago. And now those same cars are bringing 20, 25, $30,000. So I think with the information going out to the world daily and with the power of the internet, um, you take the audience from, call it your Barrett Jackson audience. You take the folks that live in the middle of the country and the middle of the country is 95% of the country. I'm, I'm saying a hundred miles in from each coast. And now you've got them on board watching every day and they're not buying the GT3 Porsches and the, and the GT2 RSs and the, and the Ferrari 360s and 430s and, and, and all of those cars that have gone bonkers and they don't care about gated shifters and, and they don't care about, you know, anything foreign. You look at all those American cars. I, I wouldn't have guessed that any of the stuff from the 50s would have bounced. And it's it's bouncing to a ridiculous degree. Um, and, and then that's that's going into the 60s and dragging everything probably age-wise and romance-wise into the 70s and 80s and, and the Radwood stuff where people are going, hey, I grew up with this stuff now. You know, um, isn't it cool to have, uh, isn't it cool to have a, rolls-royce shadow um you know a car that you know it's it's got certainly a ton of presence but you know those cars weren't terribly desirable things for a decade and and now they're you know along with i don't know a you you talked about those bronco builds i am as a car enthusiast dumbfounded every time i see a coyote and I can't even tell you what a coyote engine is. I can now, you know, if you'd asked me a while, because what's, you know, you're going to put a coyote engine in something. I'm like, oh, we mean like Wiley coyote. What coyote are you talking about? There's a whole world of guys going, I'm going to build Broncos and sell them for a hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to build Rovers. And, I, and now guess what? You know, I always giggled at the fact that people would pay up for a North American spec Rover that you could buy for 10 cents on the dime in Europe. And now all those cars are coming over here and they're not being poo-pooed anymore. You know, um, they're, they're not, they're not being, you know, shunned because, Oh, geez, it's a turbo diesel, you know? Yeah. Okay. You get parts in England instead of at your local Rover dealer. Um, you know, there's a, there's a broadening at you. What are you, are you doing 70 cars a day? Is that what it is? Something like that? Uh, we are, we're up to 80 or 90 on some days. So it's, it's grown a bit. Okay. Well you take 80 or 90 they're not all different because they're redundant choices sometime. And I know that's probably a little bit of, you can only sell, you know, like any other auction platform, you can only sell what people give you. Um, but you look at those choices of things and you keep bombarding the marketplace with them. And, and I've got friends that have told me, I, I have to give it a week. I got I to stop for a week because I, 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 I get sucked in and I look at everything and I'm killing an hour a day staring at cars. I had no idea I had interest in buying. And I think that's a little bit of the answer to your question, along with the perfect storm. You're presenting things in such a way that you can't, you can't bring a trailer, can't create the market because they're not, you guys aren't writing the check any more than a Haggerty Price Guide or a Kelly Blue Book. But what you're doing is you're offering up things at such a level where people around the world are going, holy moly, wait a minute, I didn't know I could buy one of these Vista cruisers. And, you know, I've never had one in Ireland. I've never had one in Belgium. I don't know where your cars are going. 
but uh, you know, you tell me. I mean, I, your cars. How many? How many different countries do you guys have registered now for people buying cars? Uh, not just people. I know people because uh, you can see where the cars are getting listed from when they're for sale. But it would be great to see where they're going. Two things. That would be great. This is a great idea. You list the country to where the the car is going with your buyers. And then shut off the peanut gallery every time a car is over a hundred thousand dollars in the last two minutes, like you guys did on the CGT. <laughs> yeah, no, That's we, my we, suggestion. In uh, <laughs> uh, answer to your question, we're still pr primarily uh, a North America based, but but certainly have a, a meaningful and growing uh, user base in, in Western Europe. Obviously, in Canada, uh, we've even we, we actually sold a, a, a what a GT2 Club Sport uh, out of Hong Kong a few few weeks back. Uh, we've sold yep. some cars to uh, and out of uh, Australia, um, some to the Middle East. So uh, yes, it is it is uh, certainly a a global a global marketplace, as you know. Yeah, that's I mean that that's the fascinating thing to me. So to to answer your question, I think as long as you can involve the masses, and car car collecting is not just for super rich, you know, one percent. Uh, the one percenters, if it's for the 20 percenters um, and people that have retirement money, uh, young guys that don't have mortgages and families yet. I mean, pick your audience. Uh, I, I mean, I, I took one of my kids, he's in a bowling league and took him the other day and immediately, you know, my son said something about me being in the car business. And I had three 20 year old guys showing me their videos of modified you know fast and furious cars or japanese tuned things or pickup trucks that they had lowered and there's a whole audience of guys you know that that i think skipped a couple of years i mean i thought for you know if you went to a forum maybe in 2017 or 18 the big fear was jesus is this going to bleed down through another generation or is collecting cars going to go away and boy it isn't and you know, these guys couldn't have been more jacked up to talk to the old guy in the room about, you know, cars. And, and frankly, I, I knew nothing about what they were showing me. I was just sitting there going, explain this to me. You know, what engine did you put in this? You know, there was a Honda powered uh, bug eye Sprite that one of the guys had done. You know, it was like, wait a minute, that's like a Civic engine and a bug eye Sprite. Oh, yeah, we're going to turbocharge it. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. So there's all this enthusiasm. And all of those guys knew your site. You know, I don't know whether they're going to buy anything ever, but they they know the site. So, you know, it, it's kind of a three in my old term. If you took Hemmings from back in the day and you took Craigslist and eBay and you plucked all the best cars out every day and put them online for you to visually you know, car porn, brother. Yeah, let's go. I'm going to kill my time looking at my car pornography and I'm going to sneak an hour at work and I'm going to sneak an hour, you know, when I have some time at home, I'm going to, I'm just going to go look at this. And I'm not going to show my wife what I'm doing or my girlfriend. because She's going to kill me if I buy another car. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's hitting a wave and, it, and, and I guess the smart people will try to predict what the wave is going to be with the next cars. You know, I, I can't tell you if I were that smart, you know, you'd be talking to my assistant. You know, I'd be retired sitting with my, my, my feet somewhere in the ocean, but it's, uh, it's interesting. Quality always sells. And if you got a quality product, no matter what it is, uh, to your point about selling things that are not expensive, I'll, I'll sell a quality $10,000 car. 
as well as I will a multi-million dollar car because there's somebody out there that'll buy it and appreciate it and love it. So, you know, look at, you know, Dana Meekum, brother. He's the biggest guy in the, the, the car world. A lot of Dana's cars are, and this is not disparaging, they're pedestrian things, but they're good pedestrian things. And boy, is he a smart guy. You know, he is the Walmart of the, you know, live auction world because, you know, Dana is, uh, I wish I had his um, magic algorithm 20 years ago because you'd repeat it and you'd go, whatever that guy is doing, it's smart. And whatever you guys are doing, it's smart. And you're bringing more and more people into the fold every day. So the longer you keep doing it, the longer I can keep doing it. <laughs> you know, the longer I can keep earning a living in this space. Well, there you go. Uh, Steve Serio, your, your, your thoughts and insights are always appreciated. Uh, you and I, give it enough time, could, could probably talk uh, uh, without interruption late into the night. So uh, I'll let you go. Well, we have, haven't we, before? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't this supposed to be just lunch? What are we doing? It's 10 o'clock at night. Why are we still talking? <laughs> Thank you uh, for taking the time. I know our listeners will really enjoy hearing what you have to say. Um, and we'll have to have you back uh, later this year if you're up for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for having me on there. Thank you for uh, being uh, a tool in, in my sales toolbox. And let's let's try to I'll try to bring some interesting cars to your platform. And I hope you guys try to sell them and your audience tries to buy them. So thanks very much for having me on here. I'm honored to be here and a guest of and you and the whole bring a trailer family.